Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. For this show, we are joined by John Harrington, the Commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Unfortunately, due to a recording snafu, we only have the audio from the question and answer session with the audience. There's some good stuff there, so I hope you enjoy it. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. All right. So if you have a question, uh, raise your hand, and I will come towards you in a non-threatening manner with a microphone, and I will give you a sticker. Uh, You are so ready to go. So what's your opinion about what's going on in St. Paul with all the homicides? Oh, that's a a serious question. What's the deal with St. Paul? Yeah. Combination of two things. Uh, One... um, GVI really does work in Minneapolis, and as a consequence, I think there's a little displacement going on. That's a serious, serious answer. Well, we should explain, what, what is GVI? GVI is gun violence intervention, and it's a model that the Boston Gun Project, uh, there have been several models all over the country where you come in and you have a conversation with young people who are involved in gangs or in hate groups and say to them, you have, we have a couple cho- choices for you. One, you can continue to commit crimes, and we're going to have to put you in jail. Or two, we can get you a job and a house and get you, help you get your driver's license and get you on with your life. Uh, and which of those two are better options for you? Um, my experience is if you give people moral support and give them the kind of real, real wraparound support, they'll choose number two. And when they do choose number two, crime drops and the gun violence drops. Uh, Minneapolis is doing it really, really well. I think St. Paul needs to do it. Um, But I think they have displaced a little bit of their crime over into St. Paul also. So when you say Minneapolis is doing it really well, I mean, can you just – what does it look like in Minneapolis and what does it maybe not look like in St. Paul then? What it looks like in Minneapolis is up on the north side, there's a group called North Point working with the the precinct up there. What they've done is they identified uh, the most frequent shooters – the organizations that were sponsoring the most frequent shooters, they had face-to-face conversations with the shooters uh, and their organizations and said, here's your choices. And beyond having just given them the choices, they brought in family and grandmas and people that cared about them to say, we really want you to not die because that's what, that's what is going to happen if you continue down a certain path. Uh, if, you're, if you're actively involved in, in the gang life these days, the likelihood is you go to jail or you go, you go to the morgue. Those are only two choices, and there's no good retirement plan from that, and that's not anything that your grandma or your mother wants. So we talk to them about how do we get you educated? How do we get you to work? How do we get you into housing? How do we get you out of the life that is going to take you down a path that doesn't have any good ends? Uh, and in Minneapolis, um, on the north side, they've got North Point, I think, is doing their socials, their wraparound services. Um, they have outside expertise that have been brought in. And frankly, the, the city invested. I think that's one of the important things on that is the city invested. Uh, so there's an ongoing maintenance plan. That's all. The kids that, we, that they started with a couple years ago, as they're really sort of aging out of the need for as much wraparound services, the program is ready for the next generation to come in so that you don't have a new group of real young gangsters that are going to come in and just pick up where the old ones left off. So, and just, I promise I'm coming back, but this is just such a valuable thing because you're noting, okay, this is a program that's working very well in Minneapolis. And on one hand, I can imagine thinking, well, then doesn't everybody just replicate that? Doesn't everybody just say, oh, yeah, well, we should just do that here. But it sounds like part of what you're saying is, 
no, that's maybe not the way that it would like. We do it in this one place, but then it doesn't always get replicated. Uh, and so why not? What are the barriers to that? <laughs> Money uh, is a big part of it. So it's, it, it, you, it, somebody has to fund the nonprofit that does the wraparound services. Somebody has to fund the, the folks that are going out and visiting. The, the, there is a certain amount of cash flow that has to go to that, and the city of Minneapolis has decided that that cash flow is important. Uh, and I will tell you this, uh, at Minnesota, when they had the Honeywell shootings way back in the day, they did a program called Minnesota Heals, same project, they had a 30% drop in, in homicides. And then when the homicides dropped, somebody in their great wisdom said, well, we don't need to fund that anymore. And then they went back up again. Uh, St. Paul, when I was chief, we did a group called SAGA, Stop Armed Gang Assaults. Had about, oh, about a 75% reduction in gang homicides. Uh, but when the federal dollars ran out, so did the program. Uh, and this is not something I think you can, it's not a one and done. This is, an, this is part of the ongoing fabric of what makes a city livable. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, let, let me let me open up. There's one up there. I'm going to come up there. Hello. I wonder uh, what you thought of the intersection of um, the political rally that occurred in the Minneapolis police uh, that occurred at Target Center with the Trump rally a few weeks ago. The first thing that a cop swears to do is to uphold the Constitution. Uh, which means free speech is a value that doesn't get dictated by red, blue states, purple states, or who, who the candidate is. Uh, there's a responsibility to make sure that people's voices are heard. Uh, it is an interesting intersection as the unions have now got involved in that conversation also. And unions aren't the police department, but I think oftentimes it's not. I see people... Uh, confusing the fact that there are members of the union that are also members of the police department and they want to interpret the fact that the union has one position and say that that must be how the cops feel when in fact I would argue it probably is not. Then why do those folks keep getting elected as police union chiefs? Over my 30 years in St. Paul when I was actually a union member I would tell you that on average about 50 cops show up to union elections maybe 100 out of 600 or 800 in Minneapolis. And as in everything else, uh, the world belongs to those who show up. That's a good point. Uh, but it's a very small... I would, I would be shocked if you have very much more than maybe max 10%, maybe 15% of Minneapolis or St. Paul cops that are actively involved in the union. Um, and I'm a big union backer. I was born and raised in the union, union environment, so I'm not bashing the union per se. But the, the decisions about politics with the union are made at a, at a much smaller level than the vast majority of cops and deputies in any department. That's fair. Okay. Was there a question here? Yeah. Hello. So you oversaw the um, Metro Police, and um, currently we're hearing spotty reports of violence related to the light rail. And there's a picture on the front page of the Star Tribune of you know, some people sleeping on the, the light rail. What are, what's your thoughts? What are your thoughts now as you're away from it a little bit of what to do just to make it safe for commuters? Uh, when I got to transit, we, we discovered, uh, someone to our horror them about a couple of years there, that on an average night there were between 200 to 300 homeless people, unsheltered people, that were living on the train. Um, 
we created what we called our HAT team, which is the Homeless Action Team. It's a group of cops who basically are trained to be social workers, uh, and so they would go onto the train and they would, have, they would create that relationship with the homeless and try and help them find housing. And so I still want to remember one of my first, first break, big breaks there. We had an 84-year-old woman. She'd been, she'd been widowed. Uh, she'd lost her house. She had been living on the train for about a month. It took us almost a month to get her to talk to us because she was terrified of the cops and she was terrified of everybody else that was around her uh, on, at night. Uh, eventually, we got her from off the train into regular housing and then into supportive housing because she had all kinds of assets that nobody seemed to know. But partly that was that she didn't know she had Social Security. She had lots of things that could have helped her get into housing. So I think our job is to... And, and my cops used to hate this statement. I'd say, we're the only 24-7 social work department that makes house calls. Yeah. Um, and we do. Um, you know, when somebody has a mental health crisis and a lot of those folks are on the train because there are not nearly enough beds for, for folks that have mental health issues, uh, the cops are the ones that have to try and figure out how to navigate the, the mental health crisis system to get them help. When somebody is a crime victim, and we had more than our share of those who were hiding out. I had a ton of women that were living on the train because they were battered women, and they went to the train because it was the one place they felt like their husbands or their batterers weren't going to find them. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have services for battered women at 2 o'clock in the morning when we find them. Uh, so I think what we have to do is we have to basically provide the cops with the tools, which means better training on mental health crisis, better training on victim services, better training on how to work with the homeless. And then we frankly need to build housing and we need to build services and we need to build the infrastructure that actually supports all of these groups that nobody wants to see uh, that are occupying the train because, uh, and, and I'll tell you, they, they said this to me very directly, the train is warm, mm -hmm. the train is dry, and because the cops are on the train, the train is relatively safe. Um, not always. I, I, I'm not going to you know, BS you there. I know there's some awful things that happen on the train. But in comparison with under a bridge, in somebody's car, mm -hmm. in an alley, the train looks a whole lot better at that point. We, we have to do a better job to create the social service network that the cops can then help push people into. So one thing that... I, I'm going to ask this question, and I wouldn't ask it of everybody because I feel like I would ask most political folks and I would get a very political answer, but it seems like you're, you're very honest. And so you were bringing up the training that we need to give officers. Are we giving tr officers the training that they need right now, or is there a gap in the amount of training and kinds of training that they need that we aren't doing yet? There's a gap. There's absolutely a gap, and, and we have this conversation among the professionals that says, uh, what kind what these are adult learners how would how do adults learn best is it sitting in front of a cube watching a video i don't think so that's not to not to say anything bad about you know e-learning but frankly what i'm trying to get people to do is to talk to people interact with people and i think the best way to do that is actual physical training and simulations some of the stuff i saw your folks do today would be great would be great training and in fact uh, i think some of the best training we've done is in fact bringing actors in with cit trainings who actually do the acting of what does someone who has a mental health crisis look like so that the cop can actually do try to figure out well what would work and then with trained observers they can tell them this would work this doesn't work 
Uh, we're not doing nearly enough training, frankly, on a statewide basis, and the training we are doing is all too often. It's, it's, being, it's, been, it's maximizing efficiency over effectiveness. Okay, was there a question here? Hello. I appreciated what you had to say about your commitment to um, domestic violence, and you spoke later about working a lot with the immigrant community, especially uh, Somalis. And I'm wondering about the intersection between those two. Are there special challenges in addressing um, domestic violence in the immigrant community? Absolutely. I mean, part of the reason St. Paul, early in its existence under, I think Bill Finney was actually chief when they, when they created the, what's quote-unquote the sanctuary policy, the whole rationale behind that is we recognize that if you're an immigrant woman and you've been beaten or you've been abused, you're not going to call the cops if you think your children and you are going to be deported for being a victim of crime. And so part of the training and part of the policy piece for us was to say, cops should have no interest in what your immigration status is. That's a federal uh, civil law and not, thank you. <laughs> so, so we don't think that cops should have, in, have any business in that intersection unless it has something to do with a particular crime. And, and frankly, that is almost non-existent. When we do human trafficking investigations, occasionally immigration comes into play with that. Aside from that, I have yet to see a case where a domestic violence victim, uh, her immigration status had anything to do whatsoever with being able to be with her status here. So we do recognize that there's an intersection. We do recognize that in the cities especially, we, we train the cops not to ask those kind of questions because we know that it'll have a chilling effect and it will allow bad things to continue to happen, and it will not allow us to get services for victims. Okay, we have a question over here. <laughs> oh, geez. My first question medic, is, are you all right? A medic, I was going to say, I've, I've got fire ambulance services on call if you'd like. So. Um, if no one's going to ask the Minlars questions, I will, because, you know, you said that's become a big part of your job. So where are we at with that? Like, um, one, of the, one of the things that always frustrated me when I moved here, I actually moved here from Chicago, uh, it seemed like in Chicago, a city of many millions of people, I went in to get my driver's license renewed and walked out with my new driver's license. And here you, you mail it off, and uh, it takes many, many weeks, and you walk around with this giant piece of folded up yellow piece of paper in your wallet with a staple in it, which hurts. Uh, <laughs> and that yellow and, piece of paper hasn't changed in about 40 years, as far as we can tell? Exactly. So, and, yep. it, and it appears that the company that was doing all all the licenses was actually a check printing company, but that's another story. Uh, and now we have Real ID, and there are a lot of us who had to go renew our licenses because they were expiring, but they weren't ready to give us the Real ID, so now we have to go back a year later. So where is all of that at, and, and, and what can we expect from the future? So, uh, you can expect an automated system where when you come in, uh, you should be able to, to walk out with your tabs. Uh, titles are a little more tricky, uh, so that's a legal binding document, so that takes us a little bit longer to do, but driver's licenses, we don't see any reason why that should not be a on-demand, we print it and you go with it operation. And in fact, we're looking at other states that are already doing that. Uh, Real ID, we have a big push on now. Uh, we have about 10% of the state that has them. Uh, we think probably about 60% of the state will actually need them. Because uh, you're going to need real ID to get on a plane unless you have a passport or some other form of ID. Exactly. So we think there's probably about 20% that already has a passport. There's another 10% that's going to have the enhanced ID, which allows you to drive back and forth between Canada and Mexico. So you wouldn't need a real ID if you have that. So we figure there's probably 60%. So we have another 50% of the state 
uh, to try and get to get into real IDs by October of next year so that they can get on their planes and head to Thanksgiving, wherever they're going at that point. So, um, frankly, the Minlar's problem is almost completely fixed right now. Uh, we... I was told by people that would know that you were not going to get it funded and there was no way that they were going to actually give you any staff to do this. Uh, they gave me both the money and the staff. Once again, that begging thing really does work sometimes. Uh, and we got enough staff. We have hired a, a company that has already been doing this in 14 other states. Uh, so why invent the wheel if somebody already has it invented? That company is a, a year out from having all 200 specialty plates, uh, because Minnesota has a lot of specialty plates. Everything coded in so that we're going to have the same kind of system that the other 14 states that already are just raving about this product. Uh, the driver's license piece is, is the same company that took that on a year before, and they're already cranking those out. We had, when I got there, we were having t people that were waiting anywhere from seven to nine months to get anything, and we're down around 30 to 40 days now. And I expect we'll get it down under two weeks before I'm done. Okay, so uh, yay, applause for destroying Min Lars. Um, we cured Min Lars. We don't think we're destroying it. We cured it and we replaced it with Veters. Uh, Veters, <laughs> it's a different disease. Exactly. Uh, so. It sounds like a social disease, frankly, is what we thought. So, so. so this is my last question, which is, um, so I... I I don't know if you saw it in the Star Tribune today. There was actually a, the lead letter to the editor in the Star Tribune today was someone who is a deputy uh, chief of police. Uh, I don't think it was Laverne. It was somewhere. Um, and they were basically saying, when people ask me if, I should be a if they should be a police officer, I tell them no. That it, I don't think that they should. Uh, because, you know, it's too, it's hard job. It's got a bad rap these days. You can do much better in other places. I'm guessing you have a different response to that yes i do <laughs> so and so i wanted to sort of just say ask well when folks come to you and they say i'm thinking about being a police officer or i'm thinking about doing this what do you say to them i tell them it's an honor to be able to serve your serve your community uh, and that there's probably not any tougher job out there today than being a city cop but that the fact that something's tough doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. In fact, I think in, in fact, the things that are toughest are oftentimes, I mean, you know, do you want a doctor that didn't go through you know, his surgical residency? That's tough. But we're still people that are doctors. You know, there are judges. There are lawyers who go through an awful amount of schooling to get to be that. And it's, it's an honor to be able to serve. I don't diminish that it's a, it's a tough job. I've got a, a stepson that's a cop in St. Paul. Um, I was a cop. My, son, my dad was a Cook County Deputy Sheriff in Chicago. So I come out of a legacy of cops, and I'm producing the next legacy of cops. Uh, but I think it's a noble profession. I think it's uh, an honor to be able to pin a badge on and go out and say, I'm the shield. I am the person that's going to protect you from the bad things that could happen, and that I'm the person that will always come when you call. I think those are, those are honorable and noble things to be able to do. On that note, please, a big round of applause, everybody, for Commissioner John Harrington. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. 
Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.